You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, happy Father's Day to all the Kid Town dads out there. I hope you got your special delivery to anyone whose Father's Day is a, a day of mourning instead of a day of celebration due to a painful broken relationship or loss. I know that you're out there. I've been praying for you heading into this weekend. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip open to 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. It's interesting to me that Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians 4 as a spiritual father, uh, and he definitely had a father-son type relationship with Timothy. Uh, there is much of pastoring that really does feel like being a father, the warmth, the love, the desire to protect and shepherd and see you grow the hurt and frustration when our people hurt. So it's appropriate that this sermon today is on Father's Day because last week we started 1 Timothy 5 and saw Paul dig in on how the church should take care of widows. And here in verse 17, he just pivots to how the church should take care of a different group. It's pastors. So we'll start right away in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double Honor. That sounds pretty nice. We're going to focus today on the question, what does it mean that elders who rule well are worthy of double honor? Now, I know it could feel a little weird for me as a pastor to teach you, the church, about how the church should care for me as one of its pastors. But the truth is God's word gives us some really helpful guidelines here for both your health and mine and for the good of our whole church family. Keep going. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, 18, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, wages. So at least in part, honor is about pastors being paid. There are those out there who don't think pastors should be paid and then that messes up everything. But according to the Bible, it's good for the church family when possible to pay their pastors. It allows them to focus their attention on the job and everybody wins. It's not always possible, but when it's possible, it's good. Keep going, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We're going to come back and really unpack those two verses because they set up a really healthy framework for accountability for the church and for church leaders. And Paul says this is a huge deal. Look at verse 21. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels. So just in case God and Jesus weren't enough, with the angels watching too, he says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So there's something about partiality and prejudging that can mess up the framework he just established in verse 19 through 20. Keep going, verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent, frequent ailments. And we'll actually start by unpacking these last two verses, 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. 
so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here at the very end of this passage, verse 24 and 25, Paul gives us some helpful categories. He says that both sin and good works could be conspicuous, meaning visible, obvious, external, and recognized, or they can be inconspicuous, more hidden, unknown, unseen, and ignored. So uh, for conspicuous sins, I think we all know some examples. There are rapists and murderers and addicts and deadbeat abusive fathers where their sin is seen and almost everyone goes, that's not good. That's, that's a bad problem. But then there are also more inconspicuous sins that are either hidden by the sinner or just less socially noticed, more ignored. I'll give you some examples. Uh, our culture in many ways right now is awakening in regards to some sins towards African Americans that for many years have been more inconspicuous. Some people noticed, but by and large, society was just kind of blind. And now more and more, they are getting called into the light and judged correctly. Now hear me, there are definitely some exaggerated examples in our cancel culture, but overall, this is a good and necessary move in the direction of godly impartiality and justice. I'll give you another example based on what we talked about last week. So common here in the South, someone could live their entire life with external morality, commit no crimes, go to church every week, but when it comes to loving and helping the weak and the vulnerable, nothing. And that would be an inconspicuous sin pattern, easily unnoticed because it's a sin of omission. They aren't doing anything overtly bad and visible. Now, the scripture points out to us both conspicuous and inconspicuous sin patterns, which is really important because every culture, including ours, is bent to see certain sin patterns and be more blind to others. And this passage we're wrestling with today is going to point out to us some more inconspicuous sin patterns for us. Let me show you what I mean. Pick it back up in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double Honor. Now, that word honor is the exact same root word from last week in verse 3 when he said to honor widows. It's interesting to me because some of us have a harder time honoring someone who's weak and vulnerable and low like a widow, while others of us have a harder time honoring someone who's in authority like a pastor. The Bible says that we should honor both in the church family, and that's beautiful if you think about it. But by and large, in our culture, this call to honor someone in authority tends to be tougher for us. Part of the difficulty here is historical. 244 years ago, our country was established by revolting against an evil and tyrannical authority. So we're ingrained as Americans with good desires for liberty and justice and freedom from evil dictators. But those good desires can become sinfully twisted into a distrust of all authority in general. You add on to that history that now, 244 years later, one of the highest ideals in our society is the individual autonomous self, what we call absolute negative freedom, the idea that I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and anyone in a position of authority who tells me no, well, that's evil. I should be free to do what I want. So culturally, we lean towards suspicion of authority. We tend to assume the worst and think that our role is to protect others from abuses of authority. 
One of the easiest ways to see this is when we hear a rumor about something wrong that a CEO or a politician has done, our default response tends to be, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and all the other news stations rely on these kinds of stories to make their living. And these consistent stories have a cumulative effect on our subconscious. We're kind of always just waiting expectantly for the next scandal to drop. And an inconspicuous, sinful distrust of authority can kind of soak into us. We end up with a sinful partiality against and a tendency to prejudge authority figures, which, to be fair, there are tons of historical and current examples of sinful people abusing their position of authority. So let's not miss that in verse 17, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, right? He's aware that there are authorities who do not rule well. He has that category. But being suspicious of all authority is a miss for us as Christians. And we know this in large part because God, as you read throughout the scriptures, God himself establishes himself as ultimate authority. It's hardwired into the reality of the universe. God is authority. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's ruler and judge. If we become infected with a conscious or subconscious trust issue when it comes to authority figures, we're going to have some hard times with God. You might like Jesus as your inspirational buddy, but you're going to struggle to submit to him as your king. And then from that position of unlimited authority, God lends his authority to certain people. So we see this in Genesis 1. He gives Adam and Eve dominion over the rest of creation. You keep going in the story, and he raises up kings and judges and prophets and priests to help lead out and rule in God's people, always to rule well under his ultimate authority. Peter echoes this idea in 1 Peter 5 when he encourages pastors to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then two verses later, he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. So the idea is that God is ultimate authority and he calls some to lead his people as under shepherds. So with all of that in mind, Paul lays out how we honor spiritual authorities well while also having protections in place against abuses of said authority. Pick it back up in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. All right, so first Paul deals with finances and he quotes from two different places. First one's in Deuteronomy 25.4. It's this agricultural picture that muzzling an ox, putting a muzzle on it so it can't eat while it's treading out or stomping out the grain to separate it from its husk, uh, i.e. keeping it from eating some of the grain that it's stomping on won't be good for the ox. It will lose its strength and your grain won't get treaded out well, so the scripture says, don't do that. Let the ox eat. Now, we don't really do pastor nicknames here, but if y'all wanted to low-key start calling me the ox, I'm fine with it, okay? Second quote is from Jesus in multiple places, referring back to Deuteronomy 24, 15, and Leviticus 19. My favorite version is in Matthew 10, 10 in the KJV, where Jesus says, the workman is worthy of his meat. Yes, and amen to that. 
The point in both of Paul's quotes here is that pastors who lead well shouldn't be desperately trying to figure out how to make ends meet because they would lose strength and that'd be a net negative for the whole church. They should be able to focus on the work of the gospel that they're committed to. Now, I think the concern here is really obvious, right? There are absolutely pastors in this world who are in it for the money. The scripture will refer to them as people who peddle the gospel for unrighteous gain, for their own financial wealth. This is sick and sinful. They bring shame on the name and the church of Jesus. They cause non-believers to look at the church and go, uh, what mindless sheep are you to clearly follow such swindlers? Now, I'll tell you three quick reasons why I'm not particularly concerned about this for our church, and I don't think you need to be either. Number one, uh, most pastors in the world are underpaid. We just happen to know the names of the ridiculous ones who are on TV. The vast majority of pastors do their job somewhat well, get paid some amount of money for it, and they're not on the news, okay? First reason. Number two, every one of our pastors did their job for free long before they were ever paid a cent for it. I trust their hearts and their motives for Jesus and his kingdom and the gospel advancing in our city. Number three, we have a lot of healthy checks and balances in place. We have a financial advisory team. We, we use fair compensation metrics to make sure our pastors are paid well, but not exorbitantly so they can care for their families, but nobody's out here buying private jets, okay? Uh, we expect our pastors to model for our church how to steward finances well with both wisdom and generosity, I don't have a lot of time here, but I do want to just say to those of you who give consistently, thank you. Now, this is something we've had to address and teach over the years, but we've really seen a lot of growth here. And during the last budget meeting, we were able to lock in salaries for our staff that are all at least close to the regional salary average for their role in a church our size. Until now, we've been paying some people well below average, and we are happy that we do not have to do that anymore. Thank you. Okay, now we get to a second application of what it looks like to honor elders in the church family. And I wanna kind of sit in this one for a little bit longer, okay? Verse 19, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So in these two verses, very quickly, he sets up two really helpful guardrails for us on either side of the road of how we walk together as pastors and church family. The first is to protect the church from unhealthy pastors and abuses of power. We see it in verse 20. He says, as for those pastors who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. In light of the abuses of power that we've just talked about and we all know plague our world, I love that scripture has a category for holding those in charge accountable. The Bible does not promote blind following of anyone who calls themselves a leader. The Old Testament had systems by which prophets were scrutinized and punished if they were lying on behalf of God. Uh, in the end, all sins, conspicuous and conspicuous, will, will come to light, and authority figures who abuse their roles will give an account to the ultimate authority, according to Hebrews 13. And this passage, it's not going to go well for many of them. And Paul gives this reason to rebuke sinful pastors publicly. He says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Other translations say stand in fear of sinning. What Paul's saying is that so that the church doesn't think about sin, meh, 
sin is no big deal. And part of how I know is because I saw Pastor Bill, he's out there getting drunk at the bars, picking up random women every weekend. Paul says, if that's going on, deal with it directly, severely. Do not let that linger. Deal with it without partiality. We are, I need you to hear me say this. We are not out here protecting pastors living in sin because we want to avoid the awkwardness or the embarrassment. That is not worth having to have that conversation with Jesus when I stand and give an account for how I helped lead our church family someday. Yeah? So here are systems that we have in place to help protect our church from abuses of pastoral authority because we take this really seriously. We have a plurality of elders. We lead as a team. We do not have a one-guy-in-charge model built on a cult of personality where it's so easy for that guy to just go off the reservation and get it twisted and start thinking that he's the chief shepherd instead of an under-shepherd. We operate as a team, praying for each other, making decisions together, and confronting each other when needed. On top of that, we have accountability teams in place. Our finances are looked over by a financial advising team of pastors and members that I already mentioned in our church for accountability and review. Our building plans are worked on by a building committee primarily made of members. Our sermons are reviewed every week in teaching team by mostly pastors, but also non-pastors because we want to lead you well. When we have difficult meetings, we almost always involve witnesses in those meetings. We want everything possible to be in the light, visible, and transparent appropriately. On top of all of that, all of our pastors are in life groups, and we preach about that so often that it can start to feel pretty normal, but that we know of, that's actually fairly rare in other churches. And so many pastors end up really lonely trying to handle the whole burden, all the weight of the church on their own. We don't want that. We want our pastors to have deep friendships with both each other and with other members in the church. We want our pastors to have a place where they are known and they're regularly confessing sin so that they don't get eaten up living a double lifestyle and we can avoid the scandal before it ever happens. Lastly, we have a thorough pastor and training process. So further down in verse 22, Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, meaning ordaining someone as a pastor to lead out in the church. So there's another protection. And look what he says. He says, nor take part in the sins of others. If you're hasty in laying your hands on someone you're ordaining, you could accidentally, if you don't know their character, you could actually start to participate in their sins by raising them up to be a leader in the church family. We don't wanna do that. Before we ordain anyone as a pastor, we have walked alongside of them for years, getting to know their character, how they follow Jesus, and how they lead others. So there's lots of guardrails and protections against pastoral abuses of authority on that side of the road. And on the other side of the road, there's also a guardrail to actually protect pastors from potential sins from the church. Look back in verse 19. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So along with paying pastors, Paul says that part of how we honor pastors is in how we speak to and about them how we think about them, how we think about charges against their character and what they're doing. He says, not admitting a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, now hear me, that's not about literally go find some witnesses, as that would mean that if a pastor did something terrible to you in private, that you would have no recourse. What, the, what, what Paul's doing there is that's biblical language for making sure that the charge is valid. 
So in the Old Testament, you didn't uh, give someone the death penalty unless there were multiple witnesses to say, this is a valid charge. That's the language that he's bringing in here. Make sure that the concern holds water. Make sure it's a valid complaint and not just an individual with a personal vendetta. Let me give you some examples, both positive and negative. First example was pretty great. About a year and a half ago, some women in our church came to our vision team elders, Adam Gibson and Alan Tipping, with concerns about the lack of upfront visible female leadership in our church. They had a valid concern and they went about it in a healthy way, presenting it to them. And it has led to marked change for our church practice. We needed to course correct in some ways. And in fact, this was an all staff directive for the year of 2019. Man, that is so good. Our church is worse off if these members don't faithfully and courageously bring that concern to our pastors. Thank you for doing that. I'll give you a not-so-great example. Uh, A while ago, a member came to me and told me that another member that we'll just call Luke had accused our pastors of not caring about our people. Luke was actually in a church discipline situation, and he had said, quote, no one has even reached out to check on me. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I was the pastor who was the point person involved in Luke's discipline situation. I care, past tense, I care. I still care about him deeply. I prayed for him regularly. But now I have a different member telling me that Luke said I don't care about him and I never reached out to him. So I pulled my phone out and I opened up my text messages. And I said, okay, here's where I reached out to Luke and he didn't respond. Here's where I told him that I had some personal issues going on, but I would follow up soon. Here's where I reached out to him again, and we scheduled to meet. Here's where he bailed on me 15 minutes before that meeting. Here's where I texted him again to continue to pursue him until we eventually did meet. So so his accusation against me behind my back is a lie. And I've got the receipts. But anyone who hears his accusation and doesn't come to double check with me, they don't know that. What they hear is John doesn't care about our people. And if you don't heed 1 Timothy 5.19, if you admit that charge, then your view of our pastors and your view of me becomes skewed. And that harms our ability to, to lead well and our ability to be the big, beautiful church family that God intends for us to be. I'll, I'll give you another even more extreme example. One of our pastors took a member, we'll just call him Jeff, out to lunch because the pastor knew that Jeff had a relational issue going on with another member. The pastor paid for Jeff's lunch and just said, hey man, tell me what's going on. After hearing Jeff out, he said, now you know that you're gonna have to talk to him, right? And Jeff responded, you can't just tell people to obey the Bible, people need time to process. And our pastor said, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Like, take a few days if you need to pray. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 to deal with sin that would tear apart relationships in the church family. Now, note that our pastor appeals to Jesus as ultimate authority. And Jeff essentially responded, I'm not going to do that. Fast forward, and it turns out that Jeff starts telling people that based on that interaction, that pastor is abusive because he took Jeff out to lunch, paid for his meal, and told him to obey Jesus since he's a Christian. Okay, so that's slander. It's a false accusation. 
Long term, Jeff ends up leaving our church after slandering multiple pastors. And here's the thing. I have no clue how many people in our church Jeff spoke with or if those people asked follow-up questions. I have no idea if any of them realized that what actually happened was he was lovingly encouraged and instructed to obey Jesus and the Bible. I would bet that some number of people heard him say the word abuse and they just said, whoa, that's probably true. Authorities almost always are. But either way, gossip doesn't help. If there really is abuse, then for the sake of the church, it needs to be addressed. If there really isn't abuse, then for the sake of the pastors, they shouldn't be maligned. Gossip cannot solve the potential problem, and instead it creates a totally different problem. So when Paul says don't admit that charge, part of what he's saying is be the kind of person who won't let gossip and slander become a cancer that erodes the relationship between our church and our pastors. Be on guard for what Hebrews 12 calls a root of bitterness that grows up and defiles many. This is a protection against our culturally relatively inconspicuous sins of gossip and slander. These are issues that are talked about in the scripture, but they so often go unnoticed in our culture. Okay, so so when you have a concern, what do you do? And and, and I'll just start here. We'll pretty much unpack that question the rest of this time. Uh, There are at least three different types of concerns that you might be dealing with. And it's helpful right away to just know what kind of concern you're dealing with. Uh, Question number one for this is, is it a sin issue? Some concerns are sin issues. If there is a violation of scripture, personally or corporately, these need to be brought up. Now, it might be that more information or an explanation clears up the situation, or it might be that a sin issue needs to be corrected. Either way, it needs to be brought up. Second type of concern is an unmet expectation. Is this an unmet expectation? That's a question you should ask yourself. Quite often, criticism we receive is based on unspoken and unagreed upon expectations of us as pastors. Uh, It'll go something like, I am hurt because a pastor or the pastors did not do blank that I thought they were going to do, even though we never promised to do that thing. It's an unmet expectation. And just like in marriage, I tell every couple in premarital counseling, you've got to ask yourself, is this a reasonable expectation? Is it a communicated expectation? Is it a agreed upon expectation? Depending on the expectation, if that's your type of concern, you may actually realize that it's not worth bringing up at all. Or it may need to be talked through and clarified, but we've got to have a category for this question and be sure not to elevate unmet expectations to the level of sin. We have to have a category for, I feel hurt, but I realize that no one actually did anything wrong. And and I just need to communicate through that. The third type of concern that we should ask ourselves about is, is it a possible misunderstanding Is this just a situation where I lack all the information or where I'm assuming a motive that may or may not actually be present? So try to think of a good motive for why the person might have done what they did or say what they said and see if your concern goes away just by considering a positive motive. If not, then ask clarifying questions to the person like, hey, when you did this, what was your motive? Why did you do it? Is it because you hate me? And anytime that's your concern, Most often, for most of you, the answer will be no. We don't hate you. 
Let me just chat with you for a second. I believe that most of you are wonderful. I mean it. I love you. I love our church family. And I think that you would be pretty shocked to know how often our pastors are slandered and gossiped about how much criticism we deal with, how, how much of our time is spent with disgruntled people because they assumed something or didn't like something. We are often surprised when someone brings a concern or an accusation and it's based on complete misinformation. And, and then that misinformation has morphed into something wild as it spreads behind our backs through gossip and slander. That, that hurts deeply. And it causes so much destruction to our church family that we love. Now listen, if we were just trying to run a corporate business, then, then we could be emotionally distant and we could just deal with customer complaints in the most efficient ways possible and it would be no big deal. But we're trying to form a family here because we believe that's what God has called us to do according to the scriptures. We want to open our hearts up. We do not want to be distant, aloof leaders who are emotionally detached. You benefit, our whole church benefits when our hearts are in this. We don't ever want that to change. And honestly, the hardest part isn't just the frequency of complaints, but the kind of complaints that we get. When preference issues get elevated and treated like sin issues, when our motives get assumed, when people who only know one angle of a situation demand that it be handled in a certain way, and Paul says, that by contrast to all of that, we shouldn't even admit a charge against an elder without some serious weight and validity behind it. And so putting all of this together, on the one side, the Bible sets up a guardrail, a system to hold pastors accountable so we don't end up with a toxic church culture where pastors are abusing authority and embezzling money and misteaching the word because that's no good for anyone. And on the other side, there's another guardrail to prevent a toxic church culture for the pastors where everyone is gossiping and slandering and critiquing everything to the point that such distrust exists between the pastors and the people that the church just can't be the Jesus-centered family on mission that God intends for it to be. Because that's no good for anyone either. I wanna close out our time by just practically talking about how do we grow in this kind of honor? Now, four, four practical steps for us. Number one, recognize our uphill battle with authority. We are culturally set up to dishonor and be suspicious of authority in a really inconspicuous way. Part of being a people who show honor is resisting that urge. Please give your pastors the benefit of the doubt. I am not saying ignore your concerns or just hush up and be quiet, but try not to assume the worst about us. We've been laboring for this church family for almost 15 years. And, and you've got to know that the biggest thing that drives us is our love for Jesus, our love for our church, and our love for you. We, we know we're not perfect. You know we are not perfect. But that's our heart in all of it. Number two, deal with your concerns. You've got to deal with your concerns. If you hear this sermon and you walk away thinking, they don't want me to point out problems and talk about anything I'm concerned about, then you've actually misheard me completely. 
When you've got concerns, you've got to deal with them or you will end up bitter and our church will suffer. Hebrews 12 promises that bitterness grows and it affects more people than just you. And our church experience confirms this. So if you've got a concern, you want to deal with it, here are some questions to ask yourself as you try to deal with it. First question, is this a big deal or not a very big deal? If it's not a really big deal, try to drop it. Pray through it. Forgive us. We make mistakes sometimes. The second question is, is this just a personal preference? This is not actually a sin issue. Third one, do I have a personal hurt that is clouding my judgment? I know this happens to me so often when my emotions get really involved and I just can't see clearly anymore because I'm hurt. If that's the case, let's go to Jesus. Let's ask him to give us clarity and wisdom so that we can approach the situation in a helpful way and not a hurtful and destructive way. Another question, do I have all the information to come to a conclusion? Don't assume that you know everything just because you know one thing. Approach it with some humility of, hey, I probably don't know anything here. Can you help me understand? Can you help clarify? Can you fill in the gaps? Am I giving the benefit of the doubt or am I assuming bad motives? Let me just tell you that one of the hardest things for us as pastors is when someone without all the information comes to us with their mind already made up on a conclusion that assumes our motives in the worst way possible, especially when the assumed motive is that we don't care about our church or our people because nothing could be farther from the truth. Last question. Am I taking on someone else's offense? Are you feeling hurt because you heard someone else talking about how they claim to be hurt? In that case, pray for them to deal with their their hurt and realize that the situation actually has nothing to do with you. And these should be questions that we're all asking all the time in all of our relationships. Your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your roommates and your life group and your friends will all get better if you ask these questions when you have concerns or problems or frustrations. In all of this, if it's not that big of a deal, great, forgive people and pray for them in the small stuff. Grace is the grease that keeps the wheels of the church family turning. But if you get through all those questions and you go, no, I've really got a valid concern here, then you've got to deal with it. And that's number three, go to the right person. If you have worked through those diagnostic questions and you've got a valid concern, then seek out the appropriate person to talk to and ask for clarification. You might have a misunderstanding. You might be unaware of something and we'd love to clarify it. Or we might be wrong and we might need to rethink and repent Both options are possible, but they're only possible if you approach the right person. Going to the wrong person doesn't allow either good outcome to happen. In fact, it only allows negative outcomes. Either we remain wrong or you remain uninformed or others begin to think less of their leaders because you become guilty of slander and gossip whether you meant to or not. All of those are unhelpful options. And I'll just be really honest with you. I've heard from some people that even though we try to be as approachable as possible, for some people, it's just really hard to bring a concern to a pastor. And so we're really thinking right now about potentially having some type of a care team that concerns can be presented to for accountability on both sides, to make sure that we're responding to concerns well, and to make sure that the concerns being brought are actually valid concerns and not just small issues that don't necessarily need to be dealt with. Here's the last step, number four. I'm I'm asking you very specifically for this one. Would you not listen to slander and gossip? 
Man, I love how Proverbs speaks in multiple places and it tells us that gossip is like choice morsels of food. It's delicious. When someone starts telling you a juicy rumor, oh, there's just something in us that kind of lights up. Yes, I want to hear this. It makes me feel important. And especially in a culture like ours with a built-in suspicion of leaders, we're all going to have to fight against that temptation. The best thing you can do if you think you might be hearing gossip or slander is to ask the person, and I know this can be awkward, but stop them and ask, hey, hey, wait a second, why are you talking to me about this? What's your motive right now? I think it's even potentially worth asking, is this, like, would Jesus smile on this conversation right now? Have you talked to the right person about this? Are you planning on it? Are you, are you trying to ask me, do I think this is a valid concern that you need to go talk? Because sure, you do. You should go talk to the right person. But if you're not the right person, then part of your role in our church family is to say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty concerned that's gossip and slander. And you need to go deal with that with Jesus and the right person, but you don't need to tell me anything more. And refuse to listen. Say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna admit that charge. I'm not gonna be a part of it. I, I wanna end our time uh, in Hebrews 13, or 17 and 18. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account because all sins, conspicuous and inconspicuous, none stay hidden in the long run. We will give an account for our good works and our sins. We take that really seriously. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, I just want to say what I've said multiple times in this sermon. Uh, I love you. We love you. And we want to keep loving you and leading our church for decades to come. I hate that any part of this job involves groaning, like the author of Hebrews says. But we know what we signed up for. We're leading hundreds and hundreds of people to become a huge Jesus-centered family, waging war on sin both in ourselves and in our city to see Jesus' kingdom advance. Of course, there's gonna be some pain along the way. Jesus himself was slandered and gossiped. No one has ever deserved it less than him. He was slandered and gossiped about by people he loved. He promises that his followers would face hardships. And I just wanna say, he is worth it. Whatever hardships and sacrifices come, King Jesus is worth it. I want to ask for your help, for our pastor's health and for your good and for the overall health of our whole church family and ultimately for Jesus's fame and renown. Let's deal with our valid concerns and let's fight against slander and gossip that Jesus's enemies would be so happy to see rip our church family apart. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for this church family that we get to be a part of, that you have been building, that you use us as your under shepherds to love and to shepherd. God, I confess to you again, I'm so imperfect in this task. There are so many times I'm ill-equipped for it and nothing but your spirit, strength, and energy sustains us. You have got to be our portion. God, I pray that alongside of your spirit that our people would be committed to encouraging and praying for us protecting us against unnecessary concerns and accusations that are rooted in slander and gossip. God, let truth 
reign and being seen clearly in the light. Protect us from any abuses and temptations that we would fall into and not see them coming. And protect our people from the same. God, ultimately, we want to see our neighbors know you. We want to see our church be the healthiest Jesus-centered family on mission possible. And that's only possible when your spirit works in all of our interpersonal relationships and concerns and confrontations. So we ask that you would continue to do that. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.